as Mark Bristow and many people before him said, knowledge is hard won. And so for you, dear listener, I am going to show you just more examples of our basic thesis that we all already know. But I think it's important that we're not just pontificating and not having concrete examples here to really build our case week after week. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, where again, we continue to see resources play a central role in what is happening in this wider world from Saskatchewan to Namibia to Beijing to Moscow to London to Sydney to South America to Washington. And it's quite interesting to see, you know, the Middle East starting to go its own way, particularly Saudi Arabia and Iran joining forces. Like, what does that do? I mean, the U.S. has been at loggerheads with Iran for most of my adult life. Actually, all of my adult life. I was born in 1979. All of my life. So what happens when the person you're relying on for your petrodollar, you know, selling oil in U.S. dollars aligns with your enemy, your sworn enemy, the axis of evil, as W. Bush put it. So it's quite something to watch this happening in real time. And in the Internet age, it seems like things can happen really quickly. I mean, look at ChatGPT. I mean, adoption seemed to come in like two months. Probably 90% of the people who listen to this podcast, have used it at least once. And I have to say, as a subscriber, actually, to ChatGPT, and we can talk about that, you know, you get access to ChatGPT 4 over 3.5. I'm using it as much as I can before maybe they outlaw it here too. I mean, they outlawed it in Italy, but let's not get sidetracked here. You know, things can move fast here, and they seem to be moving pretty fast. So it's pretty interesting, and I mean... This is tempting to be called a charm offensive attempt by the West. I mean, has at best we can call it mixed results. Like, did you hear the, you know, Deutsche Welle, a major German news website? You know, let me bring up the headline for you here. I mean, it's borders on hilarious. Chad expels German ambassador over impolite attitude. He's been given 48 hours to leave the country is actually what happened. When you look at the tweet, it's actually an official communique. And he's asked to quitter le territoire tchadien dans un délai de 48 heures. Leave the country in 48 hours. So that is how Chad feels about the German ambassador. Then on YouTube, I mean, maybe I can play. This is the Namibian president, Haje Geingob, talking to a German diplomat, former German parliament chairman, whose name is Norbert Lammert. And listen to what he says. I'm a puppet. I'm not your puppet. And he goes on to, you know, point out that when Namibian diplomats go to Germany, they're hassled, according to the Namibian president. And when they go to China, they're treated like diplomats. So it's ringing quite hollow from what I'm seeing over here. Africa is not taking it anymore. And we see it with Saudi Arabia. Hearts and minds, soft power is quite a powerful thing. And it seems like the U.S. is just obsessed with using hard power and it just doesn't work very well, particularly when you're basically getting a global revolt against U.S. hegemony. And the only people supporting it are a smaller and smaller group of countries in the West. And I mean, look at Macron. 
Look at Emmanuel Macron over in China. Do you get the sense that he went off script? I sure do. I felt like actually, you know, Ursula von der Leyen got totally sidelined by that whole experience. And there she had the gall, I mean, literally went inside China's borders to lecture China about Taiwan. And so it comes back to another sort of issue here. And I'm not saying we need to love China or we need to love every president in an African country. Because frankly, I don't know enough about most of these people. So I'm not saying that. But the issue at the heart of it, from my perspective, of what the global south, to use a collective generalization, is seen is a double standard. You know, as one commentator put it, for the U.S. Navy to, you know, go through the Taiwan Strait is equivalent to them sailing off the coast of Florida. And would the U.S. put up with that? And the reality is no. So there's a double standard and it's just, it's over. The jig is up. I keep saying this to myself in when I see story after story here, and it comes down to the hearts and minds have been lost. And so here, you know, when the U.S. makes its, you know, quote unquote, charm offensive or the West and Germany all of a sudden, and here's another story. This one's from the local.de, a prominent German website. Germany announces apology plans for colonization in Namibia. What I thought to myself is so soon? Like, and why now? And that was on March 23rd. And then on March 31st, this is what you hear. Yeah. I'm not your puppet. I'm not your puppet. So they're not buying it is the long and the short of it. So it's pretty interesting what we're seeing here. So, you know, interestingly, we're also seeing it on a local level. Like, did you see that tweet by Scott Moe? You know, not to be left out here. This is a tweet from Premier Scott Moe. The federal justice minister says he will look at taking control over natural resources away from the provinces. It's an outrageous statement. Read my response below. Now, all that being said, I'm not denying that a lot of this is political theater, even in Africa, right? Even in Namibia, just as it's become fashionable in U.S. politics to attack China, especially since Trump, you're seeing the same thing in a lot of these African countries. It's fashionable to tell off the West. Like The more you tell them off, the better, the more popular you're going to be. People are fed up. And it's even here with Scott Moe, you know, the justice minister says he will look at taking control over natural resources away from the provinces. Here it is, the statement from Scott Moe, these dangerous and divisive comments from the federal justice minister are a threat to the unity of our country. The federal justice minister says he will look at rescinding the 1930s natural resource transfer agreements that gave control over natural resources to Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Manitoba. This is an outrageous and ill-informed comment as those agreements and the province's control over natural resources has been entrenched in the Canadian Constitution since 1930. So, you know, it's just all over the place. Resources are at the core of this. And so coming up this episode, we have Don Larson, who I'm pleased is joining us from Epiroc, who's going to help us understand what's going on with the digital mine. It's something we hear a lot about. But what I learned in this interview with Dawn, which was super interesting and informed, she's a great speaker, is really the digital mind, from what I gathered from what she said, a lot of what it is, is about creating awareness of what is going on in your mind. Because, you know, it's easy to forget if you're not actually in a mind, how hard it is to know where everything is. You know, when people are underground, 
it's actually hard to track everything. So the digital mind basically seems to create a virtual model of everything that's going on and there's sensors and everything. So super interesting interview with Don Larson, again, digital solutions manager for Epiroc. So that is coming up. And we also have a CEO spotlight this week with Radius Gold president and CEO Bruce Smith, who talks about the company's Tropico project, which is in Mexico in the Fresnillo district. It sounds like 20, 25 kilometers from the oldest mine on the planet, which dates back to 1550, Fresnillo, as Bruce explained the pronunciation to me. It is the Fresnillo company, and they have a property in that district. So if you're a silver bull, you're going to want to hear this. That is coming up in this week's CEO Spotlight. So tons to look forward to this episode, as well as many fascinating news stories across the mining sector. Norm Keevil getting in between Glencore and tech. And so we have developments there. We also have developments on the Newcrest, Newmont situation and more. So lots to look forward to. Thank you again for joining us. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Bruce Smith, President and CEO of Radius Gold on this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Bruce Smith, President and CEO of Radius Gold to the Northern Miner podcast for this week's CEO Spotlight. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me on. You know, I'm a long-time listener. I listen to your podcast driving over the hills, and so I'm really happy to be on it, finally. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that. It's always a surreal moment for me when I hear that. So anyways, it's super interesting. And you're over in New Zealand where you're based. Yeah, I'm based in New Zealand. I fly a lot, a lot more than I'd like to. I love being on the ground on projects. If you want to live with your family somewhere nice, you've got to get on the plane and fly, be away. So tell us about what's going on at Radius School. Do you guys have some news? Tell us a little bit about the company as well, for those that might not be familiar. Yeah, Radius of Gold has been around quite a while, about 20 years. I've been the CEO since COVID, so for the last three years. I'm a geologist, and Radius is an exploration company. So we go out and try to find mines, precious metal mines mostly, gold, silver. And we've got a bunch of properties that are joint ventured and partnerships with other companies funding us because we're good at finding things. and We've just got a new discovery called Tropico. It's in Mexico. So most of our projects are in Mexico, some in Guatemala. We've had some in the United States. But our new discovery is in a pretty famous district of Mexico. It's in the state of Zacatecas, very close to the Fresneo mine. So the Fresneo mine is one of the, it's the oldest continuously operating mine on the planet. It's been going since 1550. It's a high-grade underground silver dominant system but it's silver gold lead zinc plus copper and it's been going for 470 years there's constant new discoveries there and i hope that we've got a new discovery in that field just down the road well that is one heck of a story as far as this longest running precious metals mine on the planet i mean that that is quite something and so this is in fresnio so how close are you to this then this the, the project that you have. 
We're 25 kilometres across the valley from the Fresneo uh, mine. So the Fresneo mine is operated by the Fresneo Mining Company. Fresneo is the number one silver producer in the world. They're a Mexican company listed on the London Stock Exchange. They have a new discovery in partnership with a company called MagSilver, which ours is very similar to MagSilver's in many ways. The, the initial part of it, it's a grassroots discovery, so we're about to start drilling. So the Fresneo mine sits out in the middle of a bean field, in the middle of fertile plains, and it outcrops in the middle of the old city of Fresneo where they started, but all of the subsequent mines discovered over the years in that district, these are epithermal veins, veins and breccia pipes and mantos, most of them are all blind. They're all found 150 metres to 300 metres below surface. Most of them have very little surface expression, but the recent discovery by a company called MagSilver in about 2005 they made it. It's recently, in the last year or two, entered into production in partnership with Fresneo. That was found 150 metres underground. It had a sinter on it, which is a surface deposit of silica. It shows you where you are in the system. And we are about 25 kilometres from there, straight across the bean fields on the other side of the valley. We've also found a sinter system, which is a big deposit of silica with a breccia pipe, and our breccia pipe and sinter is rich in gold and mercury. And so that people know that most of these sinters around the world, epithermal sinter-related or hot spring-related targets, the sinters are usually barren in gold. There's usually nothing in them. And it's 150 metres below the surface where the boiling happens that the gold drops out. So if you can find a sinter, that's great, especially if it's in a world-class district. And if you can find a sinter that actually has gold in it, that's even you know, more appealing. I've been coming and going from Mexico for 20 years, and I walked onto this two and a half years ago and saw it and thought, hell, that is a great project. I want it. Interesting. So you're going to drill it soon. So how do you know what's there already? Is this based on previous drilling? How do you assess what you have? This is a grassroots problem. So it's a new discovery. It's never been drilled. And how do we assess it? It's through experience. I've seen hundreds of these systems, hundreds and hundreds. I spent 20 years looking at hot spring systems. I live in New Zealand and, you know, some of the famous ones are here, the Champagne Pool, the boiling geysers and things like that. So I understand those systems very well. There's a famous mine in New Zealand about 50 k's from where I live called the Waihi Mine. That's in excess of 10 million ounces. It had a sinter on the top. Uh, you know, So I understand these systems. Found this one in the bean field. It doesn't outcrop very well, so many people wouldn't notice it, and many people wouldn't actually know what it is. So you've got to know what you're looking at, and then we postulate that you know, 150 metres down, we're going to hit the high grade. But if you look at some of the comparisons in the Fresneo district, you know, that's how they found these things. And in fact, our center system, the, the one, a Scipio one, owned by MagSilver, which is now in production, they found a center on the margins of Fresneo. It didn't even have any gold in it. This was a bit closer and they had some veins pointing at it, but the center was barren. Uh, they drilled it and discovered a world-class system underneath. We hope to find the same. So we have that property. We're just about to start geophysics and drill permitting, and we should be drilling in three to four months. 
But meanwhile, we have a bunch of other projects in Mexico that are in partnership being funded by partners as well. Radius kind of has a lot of different targets. Some of them we drill ourselves. It depends on finance and money at the time. Some of them we drill with partners. And so at the moment, we've got the world's number one and number two silver producers, because Mexico is the world's biggest silver producer, and the number one producer is called Fresneo Mining Company. We have a partnership with them in Chihuahua in another district on a historic mine that we found. And we have a partnership with Pan American Silver. They're the number two silver producer in the world. And that project's called Amalia. We've been drilling that for four years. We've got 67 drill holes into it. We've got some great intercepts in that. For example, our discovery holes, it's a, again an epithermal system in the Sierra Madre of Mexico. We hit in the discovery hole 10, 44 meters of 12 grams gold, 397. Since then, we've drilled another 56 holes. We've got three major areas of mineralization, all with similar sorts of styles, big, wide breaches, decent grades. We have another project with Resneo, as I said, and they're supposed to get going in three months drilling. That was a large historic silver mining system that was probably abandoned in the 1800s. Fresneo came to me and said, when we announced it, that they liked it a lot and they would like to take it on. And then we've got another one down in Guatemala that a company called Volcanic Gold Mines is funding. So we have four projects being funded by partners and we keep finding new ones and we're going to drill this one ourselves. We've got the money available. And it's the right time. We're coming into a gold market. So now's the time to drill the winner. It sounds very promising. And so as we wrap up here, tell us about the community a little bit. How are you for, you know, working with the government and the locals? People always want to know about that side of things. Is security okay? You're in Mexico. People have questions. Could you speak a little bit about that side of things? Well, I've been working on and off in Mexico for about 20 years. And Mexico is my favorite country to work in. And the main reason I love it, well, it's got tremendous mineral potential first. The reason I like it is because I like the Mexican people. The Mexican people are mining people in general. They like mining. It's part of the culture. Fresnia, where we're working, for example, 470 years constant production. So we never get, almost never ever get community relations issues. You go to these communities and you say, hey, we would like to explore here or drill there or do this. And they say, when are you going to start? When's the bulldozers coming? You know, they love mining. So that's <laughs> why I like Mexico in particular. The current government yeah. of Mexico is difficult. They are making it difficult for everybody with their announcements. But, uh, you know, I kind of look at it like, the mine has been gone 470 years and survived hundreds of governments, uh, and it will survive this one too. Mexico is a mining nation. It has its challenges. We don't have any security issues where we are. There's a few states where I wouldn't like to work, one or two, but Mexico is a large country, many, many states, and most of those states are great places to be, both a miner and a tourist. I'll take my wife and kids to Zacatecas with me. And, you know, with that money that flowed out of the, um, the Fresnia mine and the Zacatecas mines, they managed to build some magnificent historic cities and cathedrals and museums and buildings. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal city, Zacatecas. And, you know, I'm happy to take my family there. 
Well, you're selling me on a trip to Zacatecas here because it sounds it's a beautiful part of the world indeed. So, okay, as we wrap up here, not to get off topic, what is the roadmap then for you as you move forward here into the future? And also, as you answer that, you know, what is your message for investors? Well, I just signed a contract for geophysics and I've got drilling companies out on the site now putting together contracts on drilling at Tropico. So... In about a month, I'll have geophysics in my hand to guide us with the drill, and then we'll start drilling. And so Tropico is the lead one for me. That's the kind of property, easy to drill, just off a paved highway, it's in a flat field, that if we were to hit, we can get those 10x, 20x kinds of ramp-ups in share price. But underneath, underpinning our share price, keeping it stable, so even if we missed... We have multiple other projects being funded and operated by good parties. Number one and number two silver company in the world funding a couple of our different projects. And so we expect to have drilling coming on Tropico. We have drilling coming with Fresnel on a property called Plata Verde. Mali will ramp up again when Pan American sorts out their merger. So we've got lots of news flow. We've always had news flow and we're always making new discoveries. If you like exploration, you like the discovery process, we've got a great target that's going to be drilled in the next months. So the the best district I can imagine, and that's what you should look out for. So Bruce Smith, President and CEO of Radio School, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. And if listeners want to learn more, they can go to radioschooled.com. Thanks, Adrian. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I'll keep listening to your show. Thank you, Bruce. And we'd like to thank Bruce Smith, President and CEO of Radius Gold, for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. And turning to the website, Tech Resources calls Glencore Bid a, quote, non-starter. This is Cecilia Jamazmi on Mining.com. Tech Resources urged investors on Monday to support its plan for splitting into two companies at a vote later this month, adding that Glencore's proposed takeover was a structurally flawed deal and a, quote, complete non-starter, end quote. Chief Executive Jonathan Price, who took the company's top job in September, said in a conference call that being acquired by Glencore would end up destroying value for the company's shareholders. Quote, this is not just about price. We also see serious structural flaws in the proposal that Glencore has put forward, and we believe that it would destroy value for tech shareholders and that it has significant execution risks, end quote. The Swiss miner and commodities trader had proposed buying Canada's largest diversified miner at a 20% premium to its market value. If tech were to accept the $23 billion deal, Glencore plans to subsequently separate itself into two companies, with one unit holding assets in thermal and metallurgical coal, and the other its base metal portfolio, along with its oil assets. Quote, the modest implied premium in the Glencore rejected proposal is an illusion, Price said. Scale and diversification do not create value if the quality of the business is contaminated. If the quality of the business is contaminated. Interesting. And also part of the argument here in an investor presentation published ahead of the conference call, Tech said the move would expose its shareholders to a larger thermal coal and oil trading portfolio, which is something many investors are trying to avoid in light of the global push to reach net zero emissions by 2050. So almost using an ESG argument against the takeover, simultaneously the deal would reduce the Vancouver-based miners' shareholders' exposure to copper 
and expose them to significant jurisdictional, ESG, and execution risks, it said. This makes Glencore an, quote, unsuitable acquirer, end quote, because of the risks involved in its business. And then further, I mean, interestingly, Pierre Lassonde enters the scene. In a move to block Glencore's approach, Canadian gold magnate Pierre Lassonde is planning to buy a stake in tech spin-off coal company to protect it from a foreign takeover, the Globe and Mail reported Friday. Well, you know, I think Canadians can actually be quite proud about what Norm Keevil and what Pierre Lassonde are doing. They're trying to keep the assets Canadian. And I think that's a noble thing to do. Lassonde's strategy backs the position of tech's controlling shareholder, Norman Keevil, who has said he will not sell to a foreign company at any price. With about two weeks until the April 26th vote, Tech and Glencore each have a tight deadline to win over the Canadian miners' investors. Finally, Tech operates under dual-class structure in which the family of octogenarian mining magnate Norman Keeble owns the majority of Class A, quote, super-voting shares, each worth 100 votes. The Class B shares are worth one vote each. The business split requires two-thirds support from both Class A and Class B shares, meaning that investors with a small percentage of the total voting rights could have the power to sink the company's vision. If Glencore ends up acquiring tech, the deal would go down in history as one of the world's biggest ever mining takeovers. And Bloomberg also put out a story here. The fate of the biggest mining deal in more than a decade lies in the hands of a Canadian magnate who built a fortune on copper and coal. I'm still not exactly clear if Norm Keevil has the final answer on all this. And by the way, for those that might not know, Matt Keevil used to work at the Northern Miner about seven or eight years ago. Matt Keevil was working at the Northern Miner. He was in the Vancouver office. So we didn't quite work side by side, but we work simultaneously, we might say. So Norm Keevil Jr., 85, is the controlling shareholder of Tech, a mining company he built with his father nearly six decades ago. Today, the Vancouver-based firm produces copper and zinc from a handful of mines scattered across the Americas and steel-making coal from lucrative operations in Canada. So we have a quote from Pierre Graton, president of the Mining Association of Canada. He's like the last of a generation of mine builders in Canada. You think of all those people that built Canada's biggest mining companies and Norm is the last one standing. Quite a statement from the Mining Association of Canada. And then they go into a profile of Norm Keevil and basically saying Keevil's controlling shares have staved off takeovers for a long time running now. And that a takeover would have happened a long time ago, if not for that. Corporate filings released April 3rd showed that tech board members began talks with Keevil a year ago to consider collapsing the share structure, citing growing investor unrest Keevil and the board spent about four months negotiating before arriving on an agreement in January. That deal, which requires approval from shareholders in an April 26th vote, would give the Keevils six more years of control of a company they've so carefully guarded. Quote, it's like giving your baby away. It's tough to see something you spent a lifetime creating disappear. That's pretty interesting. Even though you control it, you're still being pressured into giving it away. So still not clear if they have the final say here and then... One more story, Canadian entrepreneur Lasson plans to buy blocking stake in Tech's Elk Valley. This is Reuters via mining.com. Canadian entrepreneur Pierre Lasson is planning to buy a blocking stake in Elk Valley Resources, the steel-making coal unit to be spun off by Tech Resources, the Globe and Mail reported. In an interview with the Canadian newspaper published on Friday, Lasson expressed his interest in the soon-to-be-divested unit of Tech, 
saying he wanted the company's assets to, quote, remain Canadian. Lasson's comments came after Tech Resources rejected an unsolicited takeover bid of $22.5 billion from Glencore earlier this week, citing reluctance to expose its shareholders to thermal coal, oil, LNG, and related sectors through the merger. Lasson would, quote, love to own up to 20% of Elk Valley, the report said, adding that he is planning to put together a group of investors who would buy up $300 million of the company's shares, giving them a 10 to 20% stake. Tech resources could not be reached immediately for comment. There was no contact information for Lassonde immediately available. Under terms of a deal offered previously by minority shareholder Nippon Steel, the Elk Valley unit will have an enterprise value of $11.5 billion. Tech resources in February said it will receive an 87.5% interest in gross revenue royalty from the steelmaking coal business through the transition period. So it's still not super clear to me if Norm Keevil can actually prevent this from going through. And it sounds here like one of Tech's main shareholders, we have another story also from Cecilia Jamazmi, that one of Tech Resources' top investors backs separation plan. This is April 11th, so today. Egerton Capital, one of Tech Resources' top investors, has committed to support the Canadian miners' intention to separate its base metals and coal businesses and simplify its share structure. Tech's plan announced in February requires approval from shareholders in the upcoming April 26th vote. It already has the support of key stakeholders, including gold magnate Pierre Lassonde, who is planning to buy a stake in Tech's spin-off coal company to protect it from a foreign takeover. It's interesting to see Lassonde get into coal, isn't it? The miners controlling shareholder Norm Keevil has also made clear he will not sell to a foreign company at any price. Egerton Capital UK partner Teddy Molson believes that splitting Tech into two autonomous companies is, quote, much more attractive to prospective buyers. The firm owns 2.25% of Tech's Class B shares, which makes it the seventh largest holder of the stock. So that is the latest on Tech. We'll see what happens here. It's not exactly clear to me after reading four articles there, again, if Norm Keevil can actually block this thing. It, It sounds like he can, but I'm still not super clear. Here's just a quick headline. Freeport CEO sees more copper deals after Glencourt's tech bid. And just one paragraph, this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Glencore's proposed $23 billion takeover of tech resources is part of a copper consolidation trend that will yield more deals as investor demand growth in an industry struggling to tap new deposits, according to the world's top publicly traded producer. More deals are likely to emerge, Freeport McMoran Chief Executive Officer Richard Adkerson said in an interview Tuesday. Shareholders once focused on returns are now pushing companies to expand output as the shift away from fossil fuels boosts demand and new mines get trickier and pricier to build, he said. Finally, quote, copper is a scarce commodity, and when opportunities to grow in the copper business emerge for whatever reason, I think you'll see companies moving to take advantage. Recent deals are, quote, indications of what is likely to be part of the landscape of our industry going forward. And finally, Adkerson said, we are increasingly positive on the longer-term outlook. Turning to Newcrest and Newmont, Newcrest gets sweetened offer from Newmont. You wonder if all this M&A is the sense that we are, as Goldman Sachs has been saying, in the early stages of a big commodities bull market. People seem to be positioning themselves. Reuters via mining.com, Newcrest Mining said on Tuesday it had given U.S.-based Newmont Corporation access to its books following a sweetened bid that values the Australian gold miner 
at $20 billion. The latest bid represents an implied offer price of $32.87 Australian per new crash share, a 16% increase on the initial proposal. And finally, Newmont is already the world's largest gold producer by market value and ounces produced. But if it prevails in its bid for Newcrest, the new company would produce nearly twice as much. So another massive deal here. This one's $20 billion. It's almost as big as the tech deal at 23. Continuing on, Canada's budget measures brighten funding prospects for critical miners. This is Reuters via mining.com. Canada's move to expand the investment tax credit for mining companies to align it with policies in the United States is accelerating funding talks for critical miners, company executives told Reuters. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government proposed a 30% investment tax credit for expenses related to the exploration of critical minerals in the latest budget announcement last week. This incentive also covers investors planning to buy shares in certain critical mining companies, such as those in the exploration of lithium brine. Finally, Bloomberg News via mining.com, China expands gold reserves at Central Bank for fifth month. So China continues to buy gold. The People's Bank of China raised its holding by about 18 tons in March. According to data on its website, total stockpiles now sit at 2,068 tons after growing by 102 tons in the four months before March. So China continues to buy gold. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year bond. It is yielding 3.43%, that is 0.02% lower than last week. So almost even from where it was, not a huge move here. Although who knows what it did in between these days. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $2,001.80 per ounce. That is $21 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $25.03 per ounce. That is $1.02 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,003.76 per ounce. That is $16 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,460.46 per ounce. Only $0.38 higher than last week, so basically even. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading $0.04 lower at $4.04 per pound. Iron ore is trading $3 lower at $119.75 per ton. Aluminum is trading $0.03 lower at $1.06 per pound. Lead is a penny lower at $0.95 per pound. Nickel is also trading lower at $10.28 per pound. That is $0.45 lower than last week. And tin is also trading lower at $11.03 per pound. That is 69 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.84 per pound. And lithium is at $33.33 per pound. That is $6 lower than last week. So it continues to drop. Five weeks ago when we started registering lithium prices, it was at $51. Now it's at $33. We're getting close to a 50% drawdown here. We're probably at 40 to 45%. Uranium is unchanged at $50.35 per pound. And zinc is $0.05 lower at $1.26 
per pound. Zooming out, industrial metals edge lower while precious metals rise. So again, gold above $2,000, silver above $25, platinum above $1,000. The only thing that didn't really move in the precious metals was palladium, which has really taken a serious hit in the last few months here. Not that long ago, about five or six months ago, it was at $2,200. Now palladium is at $1,460. So people are liking the precious metals and kind of lukewarm to negative on industrial metals. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Don Larson, Digital Solutions Manager at Epiroc, who gives us the latest information and conceptualization of the digital mine. It's super interesting. Again, my takeaway is this seems to be a way of just having far more awareness by everybody who is involved with the mine, with what is going on at the mine, which ultimately leads to more efficiency. A really great interview from a great speaker. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome Don Larson, Digital Solutions Manager for Epiroc Canada to the Northern Miner Podcast for the first time. Don, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. And I think it's a really uh, topical subject that you're involved with, which is the digitalization of the mine. I think a lot of people know that clearly they should be working in that direction. I mean, we have AI coming on and if you're not digitalized yet, so everybody knows they need to do this. But I think some people might wonder like what they should be doing, how they should be doing it. So maybe just big picture to get us started here, where are we in the very big picture with digital solutions for mines from your perspective? Well, we're at a great time in mining. Mining is a little behind sort of the digitalization process in that uh, you know businesses above ground really adapted and adopted to digitalization and automating their processes and their businesses leading up to COVID and definitely during COVID. And mining is now catching up on, on a, a very... Um, quick basis. Mine management and their boards of directors are really understanding now and appreciating that, you know, digitalizing a mine is going to make a modern mine more competitive. They'll be more strategic, more able to react, save the ship, but also to be more strategic in their planning and to adjust their mine plans for both ore grade, you know, the commodities market. And so, you know, we're receiving a lot of calls and a lot of questions because it is new to a lot of um, mine management and their boards about how to move forward with this. But it's an exciting time because people are becoming informed. Digitalization conferences are filling up and people are looking for um, the right information and coming to us uh, at Epiroc quite a bit. So this is an exciting time. Well, I imagine it is. And I mean, there is so much going on, technologically speaking, you know, again, with AI and everything. So when we say the digitalization of a mine, do we drill down a little bit on that? Like, what do we mean by the digitalization of a mine from your perspective? Sure. Well, digitalization is all about moving existing data and processes into digital technologies. It's really, you know, digitalizing the mining processes and changing it from a manual paper-based maybe with human subjective operation to a digital platform that incorporates 
all data from siloed systems, um, automation. It incorporates AI and machine learning to really streamline operations. And it uh, reduces the variability and maximizes like the mine productivity, safety, and the profitability of a mine. So it really offers like one version of the truth from all mine stakeholders so that they can uh, react to make changes in a shift, but they can also be very proactive and strategic on their future decisions. Okay, excellent. So then in terms of just the practicalities then, I mean, I think it's going to be different, say, for a exploration company versus a large-scale miner. So where do you begin? I mean, it feels like if I was, you know, running some mining company and I was running some, let's say, exploration company, I feel like I wouldn't even know where to begin because the the job is so huge. I mean, I guess I'd start with my website, but I mean, maybe that's too rudimentary. I mean, where do you start? Well, we have mines at all stages of development coming to us and really digitalization and the, the process and developing that digital roadmap starts very early. In fact, an example is greenfield mines will come to us and they, you know, may have sought out a mine plan through, you know, a consulting firm and their mine plan doesn't meet with their, you know, their equipment list and their production goals, their mine plan doesn't meet their goals and they come to us looking for some solutions. And definitely using digitalization, we can collapse time. What took several mine planners several months using our digitalization software, we can collapse time and in a week, give them multiple versions of a mine plan and show them in mathematical accuracy how effective and how close to the mine plan they will achieve. And so the ability to use digital software in a greenfield situation is really powerful because, you know, what you have on paper, you know, having people follow through may not work out. And so having the digitalization behind it to really prove or disprove the plan and to give alternative scenarios that are more effective, that meet the mine's budget, that help them optimize their fleet is very powerful for a greenfield who's very budget conscious. And then we have the mines that are obviously in development and they're maybe not meeting their productivity or utilization goals. And so that's where software can really, you know, look for efficiencies and help them analyze and reduce variability in the production and uh, utilization and you know, all those times where maybe the, you know, not, not maximum use of time or machinery, digitalization optimizes that. And mines across the world are seeing anywhere from 18% to 25% increase in productivity using digital technology. That's fascinating. So just to get down to the practicalities, is that like a database? Like, would you start with a database or like even like even more basic, like an Excel file, basically? I guess you start itemizing what your company is made of, you know, what, you know, I guess how many machines and is that where you basically start with a, a database? Well, many mines right now are using Excel spreadsheets and uh, and databases in that format. You know, the reality of a mine right now is that seven people may touch 10 versions of that Excel spreadsheet. So if you could realize how subjective it is and how open to errors and omissions, having an Excel spreadsheet, a piece of paper that you know, goes from one person to the next is you can really see that there's, you know, opportunities for digitalization 
to optimize that process. And so we're really eliminating the paper and pen, we're eliminating the spreadsheets, and we're systemizing and collecting all kinds of data. And to what you said, yes, digitalization really starts with collecting data, and data is people, processes, systems, sensors, conditions in the mine, air quality, where people are, where equipment is, where our assets are, and really collecting all that information. And the biggest challenge for mines right now and mine management, there was a really good uh, survey by um, uh, a consulting firm in town where they said, you know, mine management is overwhelmed with how much data that they have to collect but not having a uniform way of collecting it so that it's all siloed. And that's one of our superpowers at Eperoc is that we, our software can take all of the siloed data that's collected in a mine and standardize it and, you know, process it so it's easy for mine management to understand and make decisions on and give them one version of the truth. So, you know, mine management is having a challenge with trying to find a solution that can take all that data and give them the information they need to make the decisions they need to make quickly and strategically. And so that's what digitalization does for mines. And again, you can see really quickly the wins. You know, many mines are seeing, they see an ROI in their investment within a year, 15% increase in productivity, you know, two hours uh, shaved off of, you know, say mine rescue um, because they're using digital solutions for emergency support and things like that. So it starts with the data and then there's multiple layers of, you know, bringing in digitalization in a mine and they can happen concurrently or they can happen in layers. And once you have data from all the sensors and things of that nature, the next kind of level where minds bring in digitalization is situational awareness, where you can actually open the lid of the mine and you can connect people, equipment and assets and, you know, people in the operating uh, control room can see all of the assets, the people and uh, the equipment moving in the mine that gives the mine such an opportunity to enhance safety and productivity by, you know, knowing where everything is in the mines. So situational awareness really gives people this sense of how to optimize their people and their processes and their systems within the mine. And like a mine in Brazil, Cubera, just by using situational awareness software in their uh, mine, they saw a 28% decrease in lost time in logistics. Getting um, mine personnel to their equipment would sometimes take, you know, half an hour to 40 minutes by having situational awareness, they can now locate their equipment or their assets very quickly and get to work and find things in the mind that, you know, took a long time before. So situational awareness usually is the first layer of adding that digitalization to the mind. Then the next layer is usually adding the traffic awareness or we, we call it onboard navigation, but where you have this GPS-like software solution that can help operators navigate through the mines. And it's very powerful when you're looking at a ramp and you're you know looking at traffic congestion there. And the priority is to keep the production vehicles moving and never stopping. And so in a lot of mines, that's one of their biggest time wasters and loss of productivity is that the production vehicles are stopping and starting or people are backing down a ramp because they've, you know, uh, met up with uh, another piece of equipment or a vehicle. And so this onboard navigation, besides, you know, 
significantly decreasing uh, mine incursions really, really is a powerful solution to help mine operators uh, proactively navigate through traffic. And so, you know, the, you know, personnel vehicles can pull off into a pull-off bay when the production vehicles are going. And it really keeps that cycle time tight and really optimizes productivity. So that's kind of the next layer. And then the layer after that, or concurrently, is proximity detection. It's, you know, locating where people are so that there's no people, pedestrian incursions. And that really optimizes safety because 30% of the accidents in the mine are you know, due to uh, pedestrian vehicle interaction. And so, you know, proximity detection really is a powerful way of improving safety and helping mine operators or equipment operators identify what's around them and to be proactive and make decisions very quickly. And, you know, again, when we're talking about situational awareness, it gives, you know, accuracy up to five meters, but you know, almost in 600 meters in advance of you, what is coming your way so that you have a lot of time to react and be proactive. So that's a, a really powerful thing. And then the next layer, usually when mines have situational awareness and the navigation and proximity detection, is that they'll introduce Android phones or smartphones, and we call it Pocket Mine. And that's where, you know, all the mine intelligence is at the fingertips of the mine personnel. And so they can understand how to navigate to the closest refuge chamber. They have maps of the entire mine in 3D. They can get their work orders on their Android phone or tablet. They can do their safety checklists and they can also, you know, identify where they need to find an asset in the mine. So it's very powerful to have this mine intelligence at the fingertips of a mine personnel navigating the mine. So besides having the equipment knowing where to go and the people knowing where to go, it really optimizes efficiency and reduces uh, downtime. And, you know, a lot of new people are entering the mine on a regular basis, subcontractors, new visitors. And if you can imagine, we can equip them with either their onboard navigation on their equipment or handheld device in their hand, then you're looking at a lot less people having to go with them and um, be their escort. And so it really, you know, again, optimizes time and efficiency. When all are in place or even concurrently, uh, mines will uh, kind of uh, add in a level of emergency support. Now, this is critical in a mine that they have, you know, a digitalized process for uh, emergency support because it can really shave off up to two hours off from manual mine rescue and up to 50% on evacuation procedures. So, you know, in, in the world, there's some pretty deep mines that exist and they have up to 450 to 1,000 mine personnel in a mine. And when there's a fire or the mine needs to be evacuated, it is quite a, an elaborate manual process. And so this emergency support, what it is, it's, uh, you know, both assets and mine personnel are utilizing a tag and that tag can identify with you know, very uh, good accuracy where they are located in the mine. And in case of an emergency, the mine personnel, once they're alerted about an emergency, can actually, you know, reply back through either their tag or their Android phone and acknowledge that they've heard the alert. And so mine rescue personnel can quickly, within minutes, identify um, what mine personnel are safe which ones are in refuge uh, stations and which mine personnel are their focus and need their uh, immediate support. And uh, again, with 
knowing what assets are in the mine, you know what mine equipment has emergency support, like stretchers and first aid uh, on those vehicles. And the, uh, you know, control room can easily uh, communicate with mine personnel to get, you know, um, the assets where they need to go. And mine rescue can easily and quickly focus their attention on the people that need their help the most. And the great part is, again, you can tell how many people are in refuge stations. And with this Android device, mine personnel have a map that tells them how to get to the three nearest refuge stations so that they can follow it. And it's very visible on their phone, even in a case of a lot of smoke. And once they're in the refuge station with this you know, smartphone and the software application, they can still continue to get mine updates uh, about the event or the uh, emergency so that they know what's going on as they're waiting safely in the refuge station. So emergency support is a very powerful solution and uh, really a good complement to the digitalization. So once all of those are in place and working, a lot of mines will, um, you know, start to use what we call planning and scheduling software. So it's a shift software that allows my managers to push the short-term schedule through to tablets and the Android phones. And so work orders can be issued quickly. And when there's delays uh, within the mine or problems and breakdowns, which are a big time consumer um, in the mines, Mind management can easily pivot their decision-making or their, um, you know, strategy uh, and issue work orders and mine personnel uh, with the phone or the tablet can actually you know update their work progress on this tablet so you're getting uh, one version of the truth again you're not you're eliminating paper and pen so just to be clear then so what in effect it sounds like digitalization the digital mind does is it provides more awareness for the people that are running the mine. So it creates more efficiency because maybe one of the big problems of having a mine is you can't really see what's going on without all these sensors. Is that correct? Yes. And it's more than just the sensors. It's the activities of the people. But yes, it gives the mine management this open view to what's happening in the mine. It kind of makes it transparent so that they can see and react and make decisions better to optimize their mine and, you know, reduce variability and things like that. Okay, excellent. So in terms of benefits then, and maybe you were mentioning this before, but in terms of benefits, what is the greatest benefit that you're seeing? Is there one in particular that really is helpful to miners in terms of implementing certain solutions that have the most impact on their business? The biggest impact with digitalization is productivity. It can help a mine generate or save millions of dollars within a year of implementation. Incredible. As far as the exploration companies, a lot of people that run these sort of two-person exploration companies listen to this program. So for them, they might still go, well, this is way down the road for us. Maybe this doesn't apply. What would you say to them? Well, I would say to exploration companies that this to, to learn about digitalization and how it can help them develop is uh, their, their people, their processes and their systems is valuable so that they start to think differently. So when they encounter bottlenecks or problems or time waste, they then understand how digitalization can help them optimize that process or remove that roadblock. And so that's very valuable because when it comes time for them to implement that digital roadmap, they have a better understanding of where their biggest, um, you know, ROI is. 
Okay, excellent. So in other words, if I understand you correctly, you're basically saying when you're putting together a mine plan, as you might if you're an early stage company, you should really be in effect putting together at the minimum a digital mine plan as well, if not that being the same thing as your mine plan. Yeah, you should be putting together a digital roadmap for sure, along with your mind plan. And a digital roadmap, you know, um, with Epiroc, we do a rapid value assessment. We actually come into mines and show them how to build that digital roadmap to solve their biggest mind problems that they're going to encounter. And so early on is better. And obviously, it helps them to identify, you know, how they're going to implement it, when they're going to implement it, and when they're going to see the biggest value for it. Okay, excellent. And as we wrap up here, I'm just sort of curious about your take on, you know, we hear there's a lot of issue with a drought of talent in the mining industry. And I'm curious, you know, with digitalization and with creating the, you know, so-called digital mine, I guess maybe speak a little bit to automation and how maybe, you know, so-called digitalization uh, actually, could that help ameliorate the, you know, dearth of talent? in the mining industry? Absolutely. Uh, There's two reasons that automation and digitalization are really helping mines attract some talent to the uh, mining industry. One being that the uh, working conditions are are better. We're making it safer, um, faster, and easier for people to do their jobs. And so using a truck driver, a truck driver has, you know, uh, uh, difficult conditions and uh, a lot of physical uh, stress on their bodies, you know, uh, navigating through the mine. So they're still doing their truck driving position. However, they're doing it remotely. And it's uh, in a you know very comfortable situation, and so they really feel like okay, I'm doing my job. I'm actually um, doing it more efficiently and safer, and uh, accomplishing um, more productivity as a result. And then the second is that digitalization has created a new ecosystem of jobs within a mine, an innovation center, um, IT, um, people who analyze the data, people who are, you know, um, versed in mining, but also uh, versed in, um, you know, understanding and reacting to data. And so it's a very powerful, you know, move forward for the mining industry because now young people who, you know, thought mining might have been unsafe or uncomfortable are definitely seeing that there's a new version of mining with digitalization and automation and a new ecosystem of employees are uh, evolving. Fascinating. And so I guess final question here, uh, in terms of AI, then, how does that factor into all of this? Is Does that just sort of, you know, I, I would assume it just sort of, I imagine, exponentially just kind of increase the efficiency, let's say, of everything you've been saying so far. Is that accurate or is it starting to provide other solutions that we might not have thought of before? Well, AI works uh, right from, you know, the telematics uh, on a piece of equipment right through to the boardroom. So the saw AI can incorporate and help with predictive maintenance. It can also help with predicting, okay, if we keep on this plan, given the commodity prices or the ore grades, this will happen. And so it's very powerful. It's a very enabling uh, technology that's going to really benefit minds of the future in being competitive and modern. If people want to learn more, where should they go if they want to learn more about Epiroc? 
Well, they can go to our website, upperock.com forward slash Canada, and they can look at the digitalization and automation part of our website. And there's a lot of great information there or follow us on LinkedIn. We have a lot of great use cases and case studies and success stories there. Don Larson, Digital Solutions Manager for Epiroc. Thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you. Thank you once again to Don Larson for helping educate us on the digital mine and everything that is taking place with the latest technological developments over at Epiroc. Thank you, dear listener, for joining me once again. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.